have your Bibles, right? I hope you have your Bibles. Turn your Bibles to 1 John. We're going to look at 1 John, and we're going to look at verse 5. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 through 2, 2. And so we're in this series, The Lost Art of Forgiveness. And uh, last week we, we talked about recovering the art of being set free. And we said that forgiveness is a hard work miracle. It's something that only God can enable us to do. And yet it's something that we have to work at. We have to learn the skill, the art, the talent, the discipline of forgiveness. And it's made harder when we don't understand what forgiveness is. And so last week we talked about that it's not a feeling. It's not forgetting. It's not excusing. It's not ignoring. It's not necessarily trusting that person again. But what it is, is a decision to cancel a debt. And we talked about the components of that. And so that is online. You can download that. You can stream that. But... The rest of this series is built on that diagram that you have there in your notes. The rest of this series is built on the four fundamentals of forgiveness. And this is the biblical basis for you being set free and for you setting others free. And and, and as far as I can tell, it, it, it begins with receiving forgiveness from God. And then it begin, Then once you receive His forgiveness, you can begin being forgiving from the heart. And then that leads to asking and giving forgiveness to one another. Now, if you look at that diagram, you realize that you can't be what you haven't received. And so what we're going to talk about this week and next is receiving forgiveness from God. Because until you've got His grace and forgiveness in your life, you can't show that to others. You can't be what you haven't received. Secondly, you can't ask from others what you're not willing to be yourself. You can't ask others to forgive you if you're not willing to be forgiving. Okay? And you can't give to others what you haven't received and what you are not and what you won't ask for. So you can't give what you won't ask for. You can't give what you're not. And you can't give what you haven't received. So really, that diagram that I'm giving you is a pathway to grow from being forgiven to where you can be forgiving of others. And if you notice, it deals with some of the most fundamental issues because when it comes to forgiveness, there's two issues, blame and guilt. Guilt and blame. And when we receive God's forgiveness, that deals with our guilt. And when we become forgiving, that eliminates blaming. Because what we want to do, and when you go back, I can't, we're not going to do this today, but you go back to Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, it was all about guilt and blame. Guilt, they hid from God. Blame, it's the woman you gave me. Now, I know no one does that anymore, but back then they did that. It's the woman you gave me. And the woman said, it's that creature you made. And it was all blame shifting out of guilt. So the good news is God has provided that. Now, what we want to do this morning is start clearing up some of the confusion about confession, confessing sins. You're like, there's confusion about that? You bet. Let me read some of these questions. When you bring up 
when someone brings up the topic of confessing sins by forgiven believers, here's some of the things that come up. Sometimes they're resistance, sometimes it's just confusion. See if you can identify with some of these. For instance, why do forgiven believers still need to receive forgiveness from God? If you're forgiven, why do you need to ask forgiveness? Does the Bible really teach that forgiven believers need to confess their sins to God and receive ongoing forgiveness? As I uh, promoted this uh, lesson on my my own Facebook page, I had a pastor friend email me and say, Are you sure that really needs to be done by believers? And, and, And challenge, you know, that was great. I interacted with him on that. But, I mean, that question is out there. Here's another one. If the Bible teaches that in Christ we're justified, declared right with God, and there's now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus, why bother with confessing sins? Aren't all our sins covered by the blood and already fully forgiven? I mean, that's, that's a good question. That's a legitimate question. Can what believers do after salvation still be called sin? If God views us as if we are righteous in Christ, when God looks at me, He sees me as sinless and perfect in Christ, then can we really call what believers do after salvation sin? And here's one. I thought God doesn't care about the behavior of believers. He only wants to make sure we don't hurt ourselves or others. Uh, a, a, a very well-known pastor in our area that if I would said, say his name, several of you would know who that is. Preach that last week. Uh, he's actually preaching forgiveness as, as we're teaching on it here. And it's amazing. I had to replay it like three times. Are you, are, are you really saying that God doesn't care about the behavior of believers? And certainly if he doesn't care about behavior... I'm certainly not going to be confessing sin to him, right? I'm not going to be asking forgiveness of somebody that doesn't care about my behavior. And then finally, besides, isn't all this talk about confessing sins to God something associated with works religions? In other words, isn't this something that you do to a priest and it involves penance? And is this really something for evangelical believers to be worried about? Well, I think those questions show you that if we're going to recover the lost art of receiving forgiveness from God, we're going to begin with clearing up, and that's your point there, clearing up the confusion about confession. And so to do that today, or at least get started doing that, I want to present to you four facts. Four facts that will help clear up the confusion about confession. And they're all for us right here in 1 John 1, 5 through chapter 2, verse 2. Okay, so here we go. Clearing up the confusion, four facts. Here's fact number one. Sin always separates us from a totally holy God. Sin always separates us from a totally holy God. Now, we know... Romans 3, for all have sinned. We know Romans 6, the wages of sin is death, separation. But here in 1 John, look at verse 5. John is saying this to people that are already believers. He's saying this to people who are fully forgiven. And he's saying to them, do not forget, verse 5, this is the message 
And the message there is the gospel message, the gospel truth. You have received the gospel truth, the gospel message. We have heard it from him, that is Jesus, and we announce it to you. And here comes that gospel truth. And we always think of the death, burial, and resurrection, and that's the gospel. But the fundamental, foundational gospel truth is this. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And Carmen, I'm going to use my best Spanish. Nada. Nada. Yeah, very good. Uh, not quite. Uh, you're better on the accent. I, I agree. Nada. Zip. None. None at all. In fact, it's very emphatic. He literally says, darkness is not in him. None. None. You see, in verse 5, this is not the God of the shack who is all love and no light. This is not the God of the shack who is all mercy and no judgment. Sin separates us from God because He is holy and we aren't. And God's holiness cannot tolerate any sin or any sinners in its presence. That's what that verse means. Sin separates us from God because His character never changes. He is light. And the fact that it never changes means that anyone who is a sinner or anyone who still sins, even believers, cannot remain in their presence and remain in his presence unless something changes. And it's not God who changes. It's got to be our sin, our standing in sin. Now, there's all sorts of examples we could use of how People try to make sin disappear. But let me just say this. When sin disappears, or sin disappears rather, when God and His holiness disappears and is no longer at the center of our gospel message, you eliminate God and His holiness and you've eliminated sin. So anybody that starts lessening sin is lessening the holiness of of God. And so John wants his readers and God wants us to be very clear about this first fact. Sin always separates us from a totally holy God. So in this verse 5, this is the foundation of the first half of this book. Everything that he's going to say from here is built on this fact. So it's important to keep that in mind. Fact number 2. Fact number 2 is this. God forgave us God forgave us and all our sin in Christ Jesus by His atoning blood sacrifice. That's at the end of our passage. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. John says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation or the satisfaction or the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Now, John very clearly makes two points in this passage about how God has forgiven our sins. So notice in your notes, first of all, Jesus is our advocate. 
Jesus is our advocate, which basically means he's our defense attorney. He pleads our ga- our case before God and his holy holiness. Just let's say it that way. He is our intercession for our salvation, and he's ever present before the Father. Turn your Bibles to Hebrews 7. Look at Hebrews 7, and we're going to look at verses 35 or I'm sorry, 23 through 25. I read where one man said, you know, Jesus doesn't, uh, isn't interceding on our behalf regarding our salvation because that's a done deal with justification. Well, I'll tell you, the reason it's a done deal with justification is because he's continually interceding for our salvation. And let me show you this from the Bible. Look at Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23. The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. There's a bunch of them because they were always dying. And they're always dying because they're sinners. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Now, here's the key, verse 25. Therefore, he is able to save forever. Those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. I don't think it would be any clearer from that passage. He is up there interceding forever, permanently, securely, securing your salvation and mine. And can we say, praise God, amen, get a little excited about that? Now, Christ's right. Now, why can he do that? Because he's Jesus Christ. I love it. Wouldn't you like? I mean, some of us think we have this title, but uh, then you talk to your spouse and you realize you don't. But Jesus' title is Jesus Christ the Righteous. I mean, isn't that wonderful? <laughs> uh, what, you know, here's your business card. Who are you? Well, I'm Jesus Christ the Righteous. Okay? That's who's interceding for us. And so the reality is this. Our salvation is not based on what we do, even in our confession of sin. It's not based on what we do. It's based on what He's done and His righteousness. And and what has He done for us? Well, look at number two. Jesus is our atonement. So He's our atonement. Now, you put these two together, He advocates for us on the basis of His atonement. And because He has atoned for our sin... He can advocate for us before the Father. Amen? Uh, propitiation, uh, in some of your translations, atoning sacrifice. Whenever I see propitiation, I think satisfaction. Propitiation, satisfaction. Verse 5, God's holy, we're not, wrath is coming. Wrath must be delivered on our sin. The good news is, His death on the cross satisfied God's wrath. Now, let me quickly say, it's not like, don't think in terms of the Father's the bad guy and Jesus is the good guy. Okay, the Father God's the angry one, like like the dad you might have grown up with, and Jesus is the loving one. No. Who gave the advocate? Who gave and provided the atoning sacrifice? Who? Who? The Father, for God so loved the world that He gave. So, so you know, it, it, this is the paradox and the irony of the gospel. 
A holy God wants to hang out with sinners so much that He will provide the advocate and the atonement to make that possible. I love that kind of God. Amen? But dare we reduce that God to some syrupy, sentimental daddy in the sky who is all love and ignores sin? No, his son had to go through that which was eternal suffering to be the satisfaction for our sin. Now, the good news of that is that we're forgiven. The bad news is there's Christians, or at least professing Christians, who are trying to do away... With this, they don't want blood atonement. I could give you plenty, but how about just this past month? Just this past month, online, a popular Christian musician, if I'd say his name, most of us probably have his music on our playlist, and it's good music. But he has bad, bad theology. And he recently tweeted this, to see it, that is, the blood sacrifice of Jesus, as literal and out of context, that God needed to be appeased with blood is not beautiful, but horrific. Well, I'm sorry, but I write over this, beautiful. Beautiful. Precious is the blood, amen? To say, is it horrific? Yes, it's horrific. That's how horrific our sin is. But it is a beautiful horrific. And if you say, no, I don't want this because it's not beautiful, you've just eliminated what you need for your salvation. When this popular Christian musician was called out on his rejection of blood atonement, he tweeted this. Because, by, by the way, all, all marketplace technology is happening in Twitter and Facebook. And listen, if, if we ignore that and we abstain from that, then our voices aren't there. Now, you've got to do it in a gracious way. And you've got to do it with wisdom. And sometimes you've got to go back and ask forgiveness. But I'm telling you, if we're not out there, then, then that's the marketplace. Okay? Paul went to the marketplace. Let me tell you, the marketplace is social media. So he tweets this back when he was uh, uh, rebuked. I simply think blood sacrifice is a very limited and less than timely metaphor for what the cross can mean in our culture. Well, my friend, it's timely because it's eternal. And it's not just a metaphor. A man came to earth as God and died and for three hours in a mystery beyond our understanding experienced eternal wrath. That is not a metaphor. Jesus was the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the earth. And to say what it means in our culture, the culture doesn't determine the gospel. The gospel speaks to the culture. Amen? So Owen Strand, a professor at Midwestern, our buddies just right up the street, said this, in correcting this musician's error on blood atonement. This musician may think he is preserving a pristine and beautiful God by removing blood atonement from the equation. But in truth, this musician move 
His move to sanitize God reworks the holy character of the divine, making God a less than holy figure, verse 5 of 1 John, and leaves sinners without any of the benefits of the death of Christ, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Without Christ, we have none of the righteousness of Christ, no redemption by His work, no propitiation of divine wrath, no sonship in the Son, no reconciliation with God, no reconciliation with fellow blood-bought sinners, and no victory over sin, Satan, death, and hell. We need it. We need it. Now... That's fact number two. We need that fact to clear up. Because without that fact, there is no forgiveness. Now, when here's the thing. Sin disappears when you eliminate God's holiness. Well, guess what? Forgiveness disappears when you eliminate Christ and His blood, forgive, and His blood sacrifice. It disappears. When Jesus... Blood atonement is no longer at the center of our gospel message, our teaching, or our worldview, or our Christianity. So, to clear up the confusion about confession, we need to do two things. We need two facts, first of all. Fact number one, God is holy and sin always, always separates us from Him in some way, fashion, or form. Two, God forgave all our sins. All our sins. In the blood atonement of Christ, and not our sins only, but he dealt with the sins of every people group, including the Ashi. So, now, the problem is, many believers and many pastors will stop right there with fact one and two and just draw a line and say, we're done. And if that's the case, then God isn't isn't concerned with our behavior And we don't need to confess sin, and we don't need to ask forgiveness. Why? God's holy, but He dealt with it, right? And we're fully forgiven. But did you notice we skipped over verses 6 through 10? See, there's more to be said. And here's fact number 3. Forgiven believers still sin. Forgiven believers still sin and need to confess their sins to receive God's forgiveness. And I believe that is the message of verses uh, 6 through chapter 2, verse 1. Now, look again at chapter 2, verse 1. Here's the point of fact number 3. We are not sinless, but we are to sin less and less. Notice what he says in verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Don't sin. Sin, don't sin. But, he then says, and if anyone sins, is he bipolar? Is there a problem there? What's going on? Is he confused? No, he's got a biblical view of forgiven believers. Forgiven believers still sin. They should, they're not sinless, they sin, but they should sin less and less. But when you do sin, the good news is, we have an advocate and a blood atonement that satisfies God's wrath. So, when you look at 1 John, let me give you the structure here. It's like a forgiveness sandwich. And the first slice of bread is God's holiness in verse 5. The second slice of bread is Christ's blood atonement in verses 1 and 2. But the meat of the sandwich, 
the meat of this sandwich is the fact that we still sin and need to deal with that sin in light of what? God's holiness and how is it possible? The blood atonement. So are you with me on this? So believers still sin. And they need to deal with that sin. Why is that necessary? Because God's holy. This God here, He's holy. And even sin in a believer causes separation and disruption and must be dealt with. How is it possible that believers can deal with their sin? The same reason reason that you're born again, because of Christ's blood atonement. So, here's the structure of verses 6 uh, versus six, you know, it's really lousy when they make a chapter division in the wrong place, okay? But, uh, so, in verses 6 through chapter 2, verse 1, here's the structure. John is dealing, just as we have to deal in our age, he's dealing with false teachers that are infiltrating the church, maybe even leaders in the church, who are making false claims. So, the structure is this. One, there's, there's a false claim that false teachers are making. And some even true believers are beginning to believe. Because here's the thing. If you don't learn to discern, then you get exposed to false teaching and even true believers can be thinking the wrong thing. He makes a false claim... And then John makes a counterclaim to that false claim. You may think this, but what you really are experiencing is this. And then he follows up with a truth claim. Does that make sense? Now, the way you know the false claim is he repeats three times, if we say, if we say. As, and he's implying, as some of you are, if this is what we say, and then he says the consequences of saying that, the gospel consequences. Then he says, but if we do the, the truth thing, the gospel thing, then this is what happens. And he does this three times. All right? We'll see how far we get. So here we go. Hey, this lesson's already been cut in half once. Okay, so let's look at this. And and, and I grant you, this is a lesson within the lesson, but it's, it's got to be. Okay? I, I don't know how else to do this. Because I'm telling you, it is frightening to me what Bible-trained, experienced ministers are saying about sin, forgiveness, and the gospel. And the frightening thing is, as you listen to them preach this, you hear a mega church of people clapping and cheering at the points where you should be getting up and leaving. And that is disturbing. I don't say that pridefully. That breaks my heart. Because we're talking about some men who are influencing more men I'll do in my lifetime. But I'll influence a few with the gospel than to lead astray. And listen, if the 
the converts of the Apostle John can be tempted, then I guarantee you, you sitting under my teaching can be tempted. Okay, so none of us are exempt from this. All right, so here's the idea. Don't lie about the truth that the forgiven still need forgiving. I think that's what the essence of this is. Don't lie about the truth that the forgiven still need forgiving. And so here's the first thing to not do. Don't lie to others. Don't lie to others about the consequences of a sinful lifestyle in the life of a forgiving, forgiven believer. Don't lie about that. And what do I mean by that? Look at verses 6 and 7. Here's the lie. Here's what we're saying to other people. We're saying, verse 6, If we say that we have fellowship with Him, and yet walk in darkness, what? We lie. And we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, is continually cleansing us from all sin. So let's break this down. And basically what I've done is I've kind of paraphrased what he's saying there. Okay? So that, I mean, at least it helped me understand it. I hope it helps you. So here's the false claim of some professing believers and false teachers. I can have unbroken, ongoing fellowship with God while intentionally pursuing a lifestyle of darkness, which means outright persistent sinning. That's what walking in darkness means. Walking is the idea of... It's, what did you, how, did, how did you make it through the day yesterday? You walked. And so it's a continual lifestyle. It's a persistent way of living. And basically what they're saying is this. I can walk any way I want and talk the talk. I can say I'm in fellowship with God. Now here's the counterclaim. The counterclaim of true believers. Here's what true believers say when other believers say something like that. And this is what the New Testament apostles taught. No. Whoever says it's okay for your talk to not match your walk as an overall pattern of your life is lying and not practicing the truth. And what's he mean by practicing the truth? Biblical Christianity that is consistent with the gospel Jesus and his apostles taught. That's just not gospel truth, is what he's saying. Well, basically, what, so what, what's that counterclaim mean? Basically, as believers, when we fall into a pattern of, of, of persistent, continual sin, don't ignore that saying, I'm forgiven. Instead... Deal with it. Deal with it, is what he's saying. And so here's the truth claim. The truth claim is that forgiven believers still need cleansing. Forgiven believers still need cleansing from sin. So here's what he says in verse 7. Those who forsake a sinful lifestyle to pursue a godly one are enjoying fellowship with those who hold to the gospel message of Jesus and His apostles. And they are continually being cleansed of all their sins by the blood of Jesus. So the idea is, we pursue godliness, 
And yet we're imperfect, right? And we all sin. But here's the good news. As long as we're pursuing it, and basically, as we're going to see, forsaking sins as we go, confessing sins as we go, there's this continual cleansing process. Isn't that good news? Because we're going to see in a moment, or next week, we're going to see that the question that's going to come when we start talking about confessing, the first question that people ask is, what about the sins I forget? What about the sins I don't know about? This takes... He Listen, as long as we're dealing with what we know about our sin, He is cleansing us from everything. Now, how can He do that? Because Jesus the righteous has atoned for all of it. it. It is all covered, but I still need to deal with it. You see? And so you get this. We can have unbroken fellowship. Isn't that good news? See, God's not up there flipping a switch. Oh, he lusted. Boom. Flip the switch. I no longer have fellowship with him. No, it's, it's not that mechanical. It's not that... It, the, the, the point is, oh, I'm going to convict. I'm going to show. And, and he or she is going to respond. And when they respond and ask forgiveness, I, I am eager and quick to forgive because I've already forgiven all of them. And so there's just this, you know, unbroken fellowship. Now, let me say this about to make this point. Look again at verse 7. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Let me just stop right there. The, the false claim said we have fellowship with God no matter how we live horizontally. And he said, no. When we walk with God, then we have fellowship with one another. There's this vertical, horizontal connection. Because, see, there's a lot of people that want to say, in fact, you can't be long in ministry, discipling, whether you're a pastor, lay person. You can't be long in ministry that when you confront someone with sin and they're not ready to deal with it, what they like to say is, I'm okay with God. I just checked with Him today. Really? I think not. You know, what are they saying? I have fellowship even though I walk this way. Well, here's the reality. We need fellowship with one another. So notice he says, we have fellowship with one another in the blood of Jesus, his son cleanses us. And that's in the present tense. Cleansing is ongoing. But let me show you a couple things. Turn back in your Bibles, John 13, 10. Since this is as far as we're going to go today. I'll uh, help you out here a little bit. Look at John 13.10. John 13.10. Same, same, same word. It's a noun instead of the verb. But same word for cleansing. Now look at John 13.10 verses 10 and 11. And we'll, we'll hit this next week too. Because this passage, John 13, has a lot to do say about uh, confe- uh, continual confession and forgiveness. And you don't often get that out of John 13, but it's there. John 13, 10 through 11. Jesus said to him, that is Peter, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet. Now, let's not worry about the metaphors today. We'll, we'll hit those next week. But look at what he says. But is completely clean. Completely. In other words, you're totally clean. It's something that has already been accomplished, and it's total. You took a bath. 
and you've come out clean. But he says, but not all of you. For he knew who was betraying him, and for this reason he said, not all of you are clean. So what we see in that verse is clean is equal to justification. You have been declared totally clean. You're born again. You're eternally secure. Sorry, Judas, not you. Because you didn't choose to take the bath. Okay? Now, turn two more chapters, John 15.3. Turn to John 15.3. And what now, Judas is out of the picture, and he's talking to just the remaining disciples. And here's what he says. John 15.3. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. You're already clean because of the word. What is that? The gospel word. And they have received that word by faith, and they are declared clean, which really is basically equal to fully forgiven, right? Now, if that's the case, you're totally clean, you're fully forgiven, the moment you accept Christ, go back to 1 John. Go back to 1 John. Look at verse 7 again. If we're already totally clean, already clean, why would he say the blood of Jesus is still continually cleansing you? Now, that's not a rhetorical question. Why would he say that? Because what? Because we still sin and we still need cleansing. But I thought Jesus said we're already clean. You are. Fact number three, remember? Fact number three is forgiven believers still what? They still sin and need to confess and receive forgiveness. Now, drop down to verse 9 that we'll get to next week. Verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to what? To cleanse from all unrighteousness. But that's conditioned on what? On confessing sins. And so anyone who would say to you, you don't have to confess sins, because how do fully forgiven believers need... You know, why do fully forgiven believers need forgiveness? Because they still sin and God's still holy. And if you don't like that setup, take it up with Him. I mean, you know, it's just, it's everything in the Christian life is this way, right? It's now, but not yet. I'm saved, but I can show you tons of verses that says we're still being saved. And I can show you verses that says we're not yet saved. So if you get real, and what's ironic is, People who think this way think they're progressive, but they're legalistic. They're legalistic in their doctrine. If God said this, then I don't care what else He says. But He said this. The same God. So maybe our approach is wrong. All I'm saying to you is this. Don't lie to others and say, me and God, we're just A-OK when we have a persistent lifestyle and listen that's not we're not just talking about the big sins 
We're not just talking about outright adultery. We're not talking about outright fornicating. We're not talking about outright um, uh, 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 porn addict. Okay, we're not talking about a, 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 a belligerent person that, that just physically gets in fights all the time. We're talking about someone who has a lifestyle of being a greedy believer. Okay, that's just that's their persistent lifestyle. A persistent gossip that is just continually gossiping. Someone that is lusting and angry in their heart. And there's just, it's just never changing. And when confronted on it, don't talk to me about that. I'm right with God. Or worse, my pastor says, God doesn't worry about my behavior, just what is detrimental to me. And this isn't hurting me. So why should it bother you? Now, you can go on Facebook and hear that reasoning all day long. Right? Hey, everybody ought to be able to just do what they, as long as I'm not hurting anyone. Okay, so here's the fact. We're clean, but we still need cleansing. We're forgiven, but we still need forgiveness. We're seen as righteous, and yet we still sin. Are you ready? Is this not going to be good? See, I bet you Jerry and Kristen drive back up for this. Yeah, this is good stuff. All right, and so we'll look at the rest of this next week and actually move into how do you confess sins. Now, in the meantime, feel free to look over this. Now, notice it's it's not the Bible, so it could be fallible. So you read over that. If you have questions, you want to interact on that, feel free to interact. People have a ton of questions about forgiveness. And I'm telling you, and I don't think we do it enough. I don't think we do it enough. That's why there's a lot of confusion. And then when you got people telling you you don't need to do it, well, there you go. All right. So let's go to the Lord. Father, we, uh, it brings joy to our hearts to exalt your holiness. And even though that means that we're also exalting our sinfulness, we know Jesus is our advocate because you gave him to us. You gave him for us. He's our atoning sacrifice. And so, Father... The reality is this, as forgiven believers, Lord, we can face our sins knowing that you already know about them. You already took care of it. And you're eager to apply the cleansing forgiveness of the gospel. So, Lord, I pray people will be set free. I pray we will will be diligent in our discernment of who we listen to, what we read, the music we listen to, There's theology in music. Musicians are great teachers of theology or really bad ones. But Lord, we need to discern because as fallen people, we still sin. So by the blood of Jesus, we rejoice that you are continually cleansing us. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. All right. We'll finish it up next week.